0: You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Hi, it's a great pleasure to be with Andy Franklin Miller today and we're going to be talking about biomechanical overload and lower limb injuries, a classic sports medicine condition. Before we jump into that, let me introduce Andy by saying that Dr. Andrew Franklin Miller, his formal title is working at the Sports Surgery Centre in Dublin, he's well known to BASM members as he edited the BJSM special issue this year, and of course he's playing a major role in the UK SEM conference which we'll touch on. Andy, welcome to the podcast. And uh pleasure to be here again. Uh, and you've had a lot of thoughts about low limb injuries, so why don't you just jump in and share some of that with our listeners.
1: Ah, oh, look, yes. Um, you know, part of my, my previous job, uh, where I was working at uh, Headley Court, the Defence Medical Rehabilitation Centre, was seeing a large number of, of patients presenting with overuse lower limb injuries. And you know, one subject that's certainly been on uh, debate in Twitter and on the BJSM blog of late is that of chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Uh, and I've had some doubts for a significant period of time over both the pathophysiology and the method of diagnosis. And as such, really, my last three pieces of, of research have really been focused around it. You know, the diagnosis of, of compartment syndrome really relates to the acute condition. So we're used to that hypoxic muscle damage due to a, an impediment of the, of the blood supply uh, causing um, cell hypoxia and therefore some pretty irreversible tissue damage unless we have an operative intervention and that's where the intracompartmental pressure measurement uh, comes about and uh, and clearly rising compartment pressures in an acute setting is the indication for surgery. What's not clear to me is is really the pathophysiology behind the chronic, we call it chronic exertional compartment syndrome, yet the studies really aren't there to justify its, its terminology um, you know, people have looked, at Stice in, in 1987 looked at um, the evidence behind the, the reduced blood flow and certainly at a, at a superficial level, there's evidence more recently from Zhang in, in 2011 um, showing that this is, is very superficial but certainly doesn't affect the whole of the muscle in the compartment itself. And, and if it was hypoxic, then certainly the evidence isn't there to, to demonstrate the, the hypoxic permanent cellular damage. And so I think the two terms of uh, a compartment syndrome really are, I struggle with the, the interchangeability of it. We looked um, at the validity of the criteria used. And so clearly we, we confirm a diagnosis of compartment syndrome in a chronic sense at the moment using uh, the much-vaunted Pedowitz uh, criteria. And I look that dates back to the 1990s and it is a, is a big collection of patients uh, where there was some evidence of controls to try and get an idea of normal values of of pressures. Although the difficulty there, of course, is that the normal values often were in an asymptomatic leg of a a symptomatic patient and as such uh, introduced that sampling error. Um, But a colleague of mine at uh, Headley Court, Andrew Roberts, uh, a really high-quality researcher, uh, put together a, a systematic review looking at the the available studies out there in terms of normal pressures, pre-exercise pressures, and then post-exercise pressures. So, uh, you know, the Pedowitz criteria uh, rely on a resting pressure of 15 millimetres of mercury pre-exercise, and then look at the one-minute and then the five-minute post-exercise pressures being the diagnostic hurdles, and, and namely 30 millimetres of mercury and 20 millimetres of mercury, respectively. So, our study, uh, which is... Um, has just been accepted for publication, finds that actually the, the upper limit of both the the pre-exercise and the the woman and five-minute exercise uh, pressures really overlap too significantly to rely on that as a diagnostic test.
0: Just to put this in context to listeners, I mean, this is a huge issue given that chronic compartment pressure syndrome is a common diagnosis. Patients present with leg pain or shin pain, depending on which continent you're in. Um, it's something that's done every day in sports medicine. This is not a rare condition, and yet you're saying that the basic criteria
1: are flawed. Absolutely. And look, you know, we um, we all look for evidence um, base in our in our practice. And and as such, I think this this is an example where myself as a clinician uh, was doing a sort of a large number, sort of well over 200 compartment pressure tests a year, and finding myself ever questioning the basis of of me making a diagnosis. There's some issues over the validity of the method of testing. We were using a dynamic test, using a a slipcaster. There's some good evidence which looks at the reliability uh, of that method. And the two most significant errors are clearly the depth of the the tip of the needle. We're talking here about anterior compartment syndrome, yet the condition's been described in, in anterior, in deep posterior compartment in the lower leg, the lateral compartment, even in the forearm or in the foot. Um, these, these diagnostic criteria are often are used interchangeably, when actually the Pedowitz the Pedowitz study really looks at the lower limb, and then there's very little evidence elsewhere looking at normative data. So, so notwithstanding the element of is this the right thing to be testing? I mean, we're testing by and large an intramuscular pressure measurement um, of an indeterminate depth uh, and diagnosing a condition which is relating to the compartment itself. With, as far as we can tell, no real clear physiological or, or pathophysiological mechanism behind the diagnosis. And so, what do you think should be done? If I asked our listeners to, to perform a handstand and walk 100 meters on their hands, their forearms would exhibit many of the symptoms that we describe in lower leg chronic exertional compartment syndrome. They might have some muscle swelling, their forearms would hurt, they might have to stop Um, They may even have some radial nerve irritation. But those symptoms would settle relatively quickly on on cessation of exercise. But if they started up that activity again, um, then, then those symptoms would recur. And that really got us thinking about whether or not there was an element of muscular overactivity involved in this condition. And I've coined the phrase biomechanical overload syndrome really to look and see whether or not we can identify what we're actually dealing with here is is asking a muscle just to work at a level of intensity too rapidly. Certainly in the military, one of our cohorts of patients was new recruits who began a relatively fixed in intensity program, which required rapid onset of load. And similarly, a second cohort who were very much a group of patients who had once had a reasonably high level of fitness, but had been away on a promotional course or an occupational course and then had to return back to that level of training almost their expectations of fitness outstripped their, their ability. And they were the two groups that really commonly presented um, to us with this condition. What we set out to do was to, just on a small pilot scale, look at a case series of, of patients where we would just try to alter some of those characteristics, to, to try to alter the angle of dorsiflexion at the ankle, alter the, the knee angle so it wasn't quite so straight, in really running re-education over a one-week inpatient period where we really have the opportunity to, to try and trigger the
0: cues
1: that might change. It's often been said that that we don't really teach people to run, people really just pick it up, you know, our youngsters just start running um, and the availability of running coaching is actually relatively scarce for the general population and that's really what we try to, to deliver. It was, it was technically a change from a more rear-foot running style to a mid-foot running style. And look, we've had some very encouraging results, which, uh, look, we hope to publish soon. Um, we followed these patients up at seven weeks um, post-intervention, and, and a significant proportion of them retained both the coaching cues and the running style we, we had imparted across that one week. But more significantly, their symptoms had dramatically reduced. Okay, that's encouraging. So I think that lends itself to to further explore the diagnosis of biomechanical overload syndrome. And I think from my experience with, with the patient referral patterns uh, with lower limb injuries, there's almost two separate distinct conditions, an anterior biomechanical overload, an ABOS, and a PBOS, a posterior, a deep posterior compartment, which is much more mid-stance related and relates to tibialis posterior, really in the early push-off phase. Um, And I think those two groups are distinct and and need very distinct running re-education. But but the results we've we've, we've found so far have been encouraging.
0: And Andy, what are some examples of how you change someone's running
1: style? What we did across the week. Initially, we would ask our runners to try to contact the the ground in their first contact with the mid-foot. Try to run with a very flat foot almost very focused on, on landing with a bent knee, so a flexed knee rather than extended leg, um, with a forward lean. So the thorax, the chest, was to lean forward, so it was a forward running style. Um, and to think about absorbing the landing, so so to, to run quiet was the, was the cue. We'd incorporate um, a barefoot running session on a treadmill within that program, but only one during the week mainly because it's difficult to heel strike whilst running barefoot. And this naturally helps those coaching cues and helps the adherence to the triggers. We'd also obviously add in um, a, a multidisciplinary team assessment. This was, this was a real example of, of a running coach, a physiotherapist, a podiatrist, and a sports physician really working together in conjunction with um, a biomechanics laboratory, which were really focused on trying to prove those changes.
0: You've brought up the barefoot running, so let's talk about that. What are your thoughts on this very
1: hot topic at the moment? Trends are trends and and I think the the weight of evidence um, behind injury and as an injury prevention mechanism I just don't think is there as yet. My experience in using barefoot running as a as a means to an end has certainly helped in terms of altering a running style for an effect which I believe has a therapeutic benefit. Or, or a change in, in pain reporting. Well, as part of my PhD, I did a study on, on, um, on using insoles to, to try to reduce injury. And I, I've often thought that the mechanism by which insoles affect injury and affect running style is just that. It triggers a biomechanical muscle change of, of muscle activation and muscle use. Um, and I think barefoot running does exactly the same. I think we're asking our muscles, so we're asking in particular in the mid-stance to be at the posterior to do a lot more work, which is why I think initially a lot of people are very sore whilst taking up that style. And I think the the danger is that, that the general public see this as a trend, um, and, and we, we run the risk of there being a, a hidden pandemic potentially of injury that is just waiting to happen from people who, again, don't control that, that introduction of it but as a training tool and as a, as a means of a means of rehabilitation I think it has some some untapped benefits.
0: You're creating quite a stir here, you've, you've suggested that our gold standard for compartment pressure syndrome measurement isn't valid and that's coming out in the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and On that line can we talk about a couple of BJSM papers that came out in the September issue I know you've thought about those quite a bit and it relates to compartment pressure measurement and really we're contrasting Matthew Hislop's position which he's describing as a minimalist approach which which you can summarise for our our listeners and Mark Hutchinson's position which is more comprehensive saying we need to measure
1: a lot of compartments. What were your thoughts on those two papers Andy? What little evidence there is there uh, relates to the anterior compartment there is no definitive normal pressure study in any, any asymptomatic patients for any of the compartments. So, so we looked at trying to do this in a military population, but from an ethical point of view, it's quite challenging because there are some potentially iatrogenic effects of introducing a needle into the, into the muscle itself. Now, what I'd be very interested in finding out, which sits somewhere between a very minimalistic approach and a more comprehensive is the difference between the compartmental measure of pressure, so the subfascial level, um, and the intramuscular pressure. And I think that would tell us something significant. It would tell us whether there is a compressive effect within the compartment and whether that extends throughout the muscle. And I suspect it's unlikely to extend throughout the muscle, otherwise we would see this hypoxic ischemic cell damage. But it may be that what we're dealing with here, potentially in a much smaller cohort of patients, um, that there is a fascial compliance issue which is resulted in some pressure, local pressure change around the surface. But, but without using solid-state catheters, we don't have the technology available to do that because if we tried to use the bolus method sub-fascially, the bolus would dissipate and we wouldn't get a reading.
0: And you touched on the fascia. A lot of people don't have a great mental image of fascia, but you studied it in detail in your thesis.
1: The best way of describing it is that if we start at the at the hip, the iliotibial band, often referred to as this discrete entity, really isn't. It, it's a, if you imagine a um, a stocking with a thickening of the fibres around the lateral thigh, that's really all it is. The the, the fascia and the ITB are one and the same. Um, the thickness and the fibre orientation vary significantly, and a lot of the work that we did in terms of strain transmission looks at the, the fiber, certainly in terms of, of fascial load, the strain is, is conduited down the lateral fibers, so really the increased density. So the iliotibial band has an increased density, a thickness of fibers of, of collagen and, and, and therefore transmits more strain. But there's some interesting deviations around the lower leg, around the peroneia, around the lateral compartment. Again, there's a similar concentration of fibers. It's certainly thicker, um, the fascia over there, um, and really hints at what might be going on mechanically. The other, other area, carry me, is, is the posterior thigh. And, and one of the areas we found with the fascia itself was the presence, presence of ligaments across the posterior thigh, fascial outpouchings, if you like, much like the Astley Cooper ligaments in the breast, um, really supportive um, extroversations of, of fascia through the, through the fat And these only occur in the whole of the lower limb across the posterior thigh in the upper high hamstring area. And certainly with Peter Brookner, we've been looking at some of the the clinical manifestations of of posterior thigh pain with the fascia. And I think it's a really untapped resource that we're really just starting to to open our eyes to.
0: Lots of new ideas. So bringing this back to the patient in in the clinic, quick hitters on managing thigh pains in the office today. What does your work, how does that
1: help? The, See, the answer is in the history. I think if it's a gradual onset, it's exercise-related, um, and it's related to a, to a rise or a return to training, my view is that currently that should be biomechanical overload or a muscle overload condition until you can prove otherwise. And I would, I would urge our listeners to consider the rehabilitation elements of, of gait and running retraining. I don't think we can rule out clearly until the definitive studies are done the presence of a compartment-type syndrome. Um, One conclusion that we draw in our paper uh, in the systematic review is that perhaps if we added on 10 millimeters of mercury to the Pettigrew's criteria, this would improve the specificity but obviously decrease the sensitivity. So adding 10 to those threshold values would certainly give you as a clinician an added level of confidence that, that there was a significant abnormality as far as the available evidence goes um, with patients with potential raised pressures. And, of course, we must never rule out the, the, the stress fracture. Uh, we've gone away from um, radioisotopes going into into MRI, and uh, the one benefit that does show, of course, is any per- early periosteal reaction.
0: And on that MRI investigation of choice now for leg pain, chin pain?
1: Yes, it identifies that early periosteal change and, and suggests it, and certainly... In the young developing athlete, it identifies any um, physical change at the same time and without the the isotope dose of of radioisotope imaging
0: and I won 't let you go without touching on your fantastic paper in the American Journal of Sports Medicine on orthotics. Tell uh, listeners about that
1: this again started from a from a clinical question. I was at a conference saw a, saw a device which was a um, uh, the RS scan foot scan pressure measurement device that they were using to uh, to look at. Uh, golf swing, and I just started to look at whether or not there might be a uh, biomechanical, a simplistic, a clinician um, interpretable uh, uh, method of looking at um, screening, and um, and essentially um, put together a, a pilot, initial study, looking at um, uh, whether or not you could screen our recruits at a military establishment walking over a pressure plate. Uh, broadly grouping them into high, medium, and low risk of of injury. And I won't go into the the fine-tuning of it. So the initial study looked at whether that correlated with injury, and it seemed to correlate well. We uh, took uh, those patients at medium and high risk of injury as based on the previous work and randomized as to whether they received a corrective orthotic. It was an automatic prescription of a a non-rigid, Insole, which would be, I guess we describe as a semi-customized orthosis um, based on the level of correction that the software, the D3D software interpreted as, as correcting the abnormality. I think the actual mechanism here is actually muscle activation. Where I think the, the orthotic insert is, is triggering muscle activity in the in the lower leg alongside creating a, a better fit in the boot. We followed these patients up across uh, initial military training and were and we're delighted by the by the results, giving us an NNT of two to, to treat, um, with reducing the the risk of injury in this initial military training.
0: And NNT being number needed to treat, of course. So for every two patients that you treated, you had one fewer injuries. That-
1: yes, absolutely. And and we didn't expect anything like that in terms of of, of outcome. And and I've spoken about this at, at length with with people far more experts in the field than I. Um, I think we were very specific on our our, our definition of injury um, which was was an injury that required removal from training and and people unfamiliar with the military training environment, um, that's pretty pretty realistic because if you actually have an injury and you are unable physically to train, you have to present to a medical center in order to excuse yourself from training. So if anything, we underreported the risk um, of exposure the false presentation of of, of injury would be very difficult in that environment. So we looked at that um, uh, very specifically as an outcome measure to to really try to be certain that we weren't uh, affecting things unnecessarily. We had some iatrogenic injury, and blisters were relatively common, although they are clearly common in military training. We were pleasantly surprised by the study, and a relatively simple and low-cost intervention that we were able to influence injury presentation quite dramatically.
0: Thanks, Andy. And it does bring us on a topic dear to your heart, which is the UK SEM conference in November. You were talking about the effect of low limb biomechanics in this call, and that's one focus on the conference, isn't it?
1: No, absolutely. I mean, look, we're we're really focusing in part on the on the barefoot running debate and, and running biomechanics. We've really got um, a world array of of eminent speakers, you yeah. know, ranging from from Ben O'Neige from from Calgary to to Daniel Lieberman to Daniel Howe. Um, And and our our principal partner, ASICS, um, are very kindly supporting a roundtable discussion, really giving their science approach to to footwear design, but also um, very willing to to open the debate to to the barefoot uh, experts, to the research going on around shoe design um, and really the, the impact of shod versus unshod running in both injury prevention, but also in participation. And there's a lot
0: of practical elements in the in this conference which differentiates from many others.
1: We've developed an exhibition hall which has a 60-metre four-lane running track, a swimming pool, um, a judo area, a fencing sign, a weightlifting and a boxing area where leading athletes from national governing bodies in, in UK sport but then also from around the world will give the, the, give the delegate the ability to get close to the athlete and the coach in booked workshops. UK Athletics are one of our uh, endorsing partners. They're going to be running some sessions on the biomechanics of running and also how the interface between the medical team and the and the performer work in terms of improving performance. Professor Wayne Durman's coming over from from South Africa as part of that UK Athletics package. Just really talking on building building the team.
0: Tell us about a, a couple of the keynote speakers who people don't get to hear at the regular conferences
1: we are able to uh, announce that. Her Royal Highness, the Princess Royal, will be be opening the conference and delivering the the opening keynote on her experiences as an Olympian, but then also as a member of the IOC and how how she personally has felt things have changed leading up to to London 2012. One of the other uh, keynote speakers who we're able to announce today is is David Miller, the the Olympic and uh, world-level cyclist. Uh, who, who, unfortunately, will be known to many of our listeners for, uh, for the doping allegations and his subsequent uh, book, which um, which really gives a, a unique personal insight into the pressures of racing and professional cycling, but also almost the rehabilitation process.
0: And we're going to direct the listeners back to your other podcast for more information about the conference. Andy, you're very active um, with Twitter yourself. To tell us the UK SPM Twitter
1: handle. And- Twitter is a fantastic tool for us. We've engaged with our speakers, uh, many of whom have active Twitter accounts. The, the UKSEM Twitter is at UKSEM for the latest speaker news and workshop news. Uh, certainly uh, look there. And
0: then the website is .ukSEM.org. Congratulations on all your hard work on that so far. So that's on November 23 to November 26th. Andy, thanks so much for being on this podcast again and your support of BJSM. You've been listening to Andy Franklin Miller, who's the director of UKSEM, and he's also the chair of the BASM Education theme. Follow BJSM on Twitter, which is at BJSM underscore BMJ, and we blog three times weekly on the BJSM homepage. Thanks for listening.